the question that faces all of humanity is what are you going to what does death mean to you what, what is death ultimately is death in other words is death an end or is death a beginning and what i would propose to you is what you do with that question whether death is an ending or death is a beginning really determines the rest of the way that you live. You can see this in how every worldview has to answer this question, reconcile this question in their minds in some way. For the Indian religions, for Hinduism, for Buddhism, for instance, they recognize that, that the world is built on a system of karma. That you have to do more good than you do bad. And that if you do more good than you do bad, that the, the good is going to outweigh the bad. And as a result, as a result, as you step out of this life, as you, as you enter death, then you will be reincarnated as something, as a different type of creature in the next life. And depending on, on where your karma stands, depending on how well you lived and, and how much your good outweighs your bad, will depend upon how... What, what you are reincarnated in as you go into the next life. So you can see and you can imagine how that affects the way that you live right now, right? It means that I'm constantly living with a balance in my mind. Where is the balance? Where is the scale right now? Have I done more good than bad? Have I thought more good than bad? Have I, have I had a better attitude than I have a poorer attitude? Have I had better motives than I have had good motives? Have I, have I helped more poor people than I have been greedy? And so you're constantly weighing this out. And honestly, you really never even know where you stand, right? Mormonism is not all that different. I spent a good deal of last year actually studying Mormonism. The Lord was just doing a really unique work in my heart to that end. And so what, what, what I learned about Mormonism is that what they believe is that if you're a man, of course, okay, uh, and, and, and if you're a white man, of course, uh, it's, it's all in there, read the book, um, then what the belief is is that if you live a life according to their rules, if you live a life according to their standards, if you live a life according to their ethics, then what you're able to do is they believe in three levels of kingdom, that if you live perfectly, if you live what the, the word that they use most often is worthily, if you live a worthy life, if you live a life that measures up according to all the rules and all the statutes and all the things, then you will inherit a celestial kingdom of your own. That in other words, in other words, you become a God. You can become a father of your own planet that is filled with billions and billions and billions of spirit children that are for your glory, for your pleasure. And so that, that's, that's where you get so many of the things that are, we understand to be associated with Mormonism. But when everything is built on a system of you making yourself worthy, you can imagine how that affects the way that you live. You can imagine how you have to either decide, I'm going to be a disappointment, and I'm just going to kind of be mediocre and run-of-the-mill and settle for one of the two lower levels of heaven, or, or, or I'm going to go after this thing full bore, I'm going to try to be as worthy as I can, that I can inherit the celestial kingdom, and even then, even then, I really don't know that I've been good enough. Even then, I really don't know that I've been worthy enough. I mean, how do you know if you've been worthy? How do you know if your attitude has been good enough? How do you know if your motives have been good enough? How do you know if your perspective has been good enough? Like, how do you know? And so you, you live this life of, of 
just total exhaustion. Did you know that in Utah, which is overwhelmingly Mormon, did you know that child su- suicide is 60% higher? Child suicide is, rates are 60% higher in, in Utah because they don't, they don't know how to measure up. They, they, they feel this need to portray to everyone perfection and, and worthiness. And the truth is, is they know. They know they're not worthy. If we were to look at the fastest growing belief when it, when it ter- comes to death in our day, it wouldn't be uh, reincarnation. It wouldn't be the inheritance of a celestial kingdom. It wouldn't be the inheritance of eternal life like, like we believe. What would, would be the fastest growing perspective in our day would be that there is no afterlife. That this is it. That this is it. That this is what 25%, one in four Americans hold, that there is no afterlife. That there is, there is nothing but what we see in the here and now. But so what do we do to assign meaning in that case? What, what do we do to assign meaning? The, the hope becomes that if I'm going to live beyond the grave and there is no afterlife, then what my responsibility is is I have to advance humanity. I have to help humanity progress forward. I have to help humankind take the next steps. In other words, because I, I, my, my religion is built on a system of evolution, my responsibility is to help humanity evolve forward at least one step, at least one mutation, right? I feel like I'm a step back for humanity myself, but that, that's the goal, right? Well, this is what gets to why there's so much division today. This is what gets to why there's so much hatred today. Why there's so much anger, so much vitriol. It's because all of, all of these people are trying to live and to assign meaning to their life. And they're assigning meaning to their life by trying to advance humanity forward. But everybody has a different idea about what that means. Everybody has a different concept of what it means to progress, of what it means to move forward, of what it means to evolve in a positive way. And so everybody is left in their own devices, going in all their own directions, and they're mad at you, and they're mad at me, and they're mad at everybody else because they see us as working against their very pursuit of meaning, working against their very pursuit of purpose, because our perspective on progression is different than their perspective on progression. So it determines the way that you live. It determines the way that you respond. It determines the way that you think. So when we come to Deuteronomy chapter 34, what we can be sure of is that the way that the Bible presents Moses' life is Moses' life is presented as being a, a, a beginning and not an end. It's presented to us as being a beginning and not an end. And, and being a beginning, that, that it sets forth some, some promises for God, for what, what it will become for Moses, certainly, but what it, for what it, we can all expect, for what we can all hope for, for what we can all live for. And, and this brings us back to the big story. That what I think we can see in Deuteronomy chapter 34 is at least three gospel promises. Three gospel promises promises that will help us in our reconciliation of the way our lives are right now and in in helping us be able to move forward and to live in a way that is free from the desire to make ourselves worthy, free from the despair of feeling like we have no hope, but instead filled with the assurance that comes with a relationship with the living God. So the first promise that I want you to see this morning is that ruins are being redeemed. Ruins 
are being redeemed. Look at verse 4 with me there. It says, And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your own eyes. There's a big but here. You shall not go over there. But you shall not go over there. So you can imagine the picture. Moses is 120 years old. I don't care what your perspective of Moses is. In my mind, the man had a long flowing white beard. Okay, that's just how it happened. And so you, so, so you can imagine, you've got Moses, he's got his long flowing white beard, I almost imagine it, uh, thrown over his shoulders as this man is ascending up to the top of Mount Pisgah. Now, I don't know how many of y'all can imagine, but it, it's hard to imagine a man that's 120 years old making a hike and a climb to this. But God says, he makes it clear in the text in Deuteronomy 34 that, that Moses' vigor was unabated. That doesn't mean he's as good as he's ever been, but it, he's making it clear that Moses is physically well. Moses isn't going to die because he's unhealthy. In fact, Moses is able to make this climb because his, his vigor is unabated. His energy is there. His, his, his ability to, his vitality to be able to move forward and to grow and, and to do what God has called him to do. And so Moses is making this climb, but Moses knows because God has already told him. It's the, much of the theme of the book of Deuteronomy that he's climbing there to not come down again. How many times has Moses climbed on the mountain for God? How, how Moses has climbed to the top of Sinai and he has received the Ten Commandments. How, how he climbed back up there to get him a second time. How he would go into the high places and he would pray and he would preach to God's word from the sides of hills. Oh, he had climbed to the mountains a thousand times for the Lord. But this was the final climb. And so you can imagine that as Moses is making his ascent up the mount to Pisgah, that all of his life is going through his mind. See, Moses had done incredible things, right? We know this. Moses was there when, when God sent the plagues upon Egypt. And Moses was there when, and he was the one that even raised up his staff that parted the Red Sea. And Moses was there when he struck the rock and water poured out. And Moses was there when, when the bread fell out of the sky. And Moses had went into the tent of meeting and he had met face to face with the living God. Moses was on the Ten Commandments when the Lord wrote them with his own finger on the tablets of stone. And Moses was there when he descended the mountain and, and the people had built, made a false, a, a golden calf and he had melted it and made them drink it. And he went back up and, and got the Ten Commandments again. God, he was there when God gave the covenant to them. He had mediated for Israel. He had interceded for Israel. He had seen God's grace, God's mercy, God's supply time and again. He had witnessed miraculous things. He had even brought them right to the very edge of the promised land some 40 years earlier. But Moses' life wasn't all filled with rain, uh, cherry drops and rainbows, right? No, his life was one of regrets. And you can't help but think that as Moses was making this climb up to Pisgah, that he was reflecting on all of the regrets from his life. After all, what, what's, the, what's the point of verse 4? The point of verse 4 is to say this. You were intended to go into the promised land. You were intended to go into the promised land, but you're going to have to settle for seeing it. You were intended to go into the promised land, but you're going to have to settle for seeing it. In, in other words, it was a, a, a picture of the regrets that Moses had. 
Moses had witnessed impossible things that God had done. But it's just as true that Moses had failed in big ways. You, you can think about our introduction to Moses. Moses is this young man, and he's vital, and he's living in the house of Pharaoh, and he, and he becomes convinced of his people, and he loves his people, and he sees a, an Egyptian mistreating one of the Hebrews, and what does he do? He murders him there in cold blood. His temper gets the better of him, and he, and he tries to bury him there in the sand, and he has to go on the run. You, you can think about uh, Moses as, he, uh, as, as God comes to him, and Moses reveals himself to be a painfully insecure man. I think when we think of Moses, we don't think of Moses as being an insecure leader, do we? We don't think of Moses as being one that wasn't, wasn't sure of himself or sure of the confidence that, that God was going to be with him. But remember how when God's coming to commission Moses and he tells Moses what the task that he's calling him to do is going to be, do you remember what Moses says to him? Moses says, I stutter. I don't speak plainly. I don't speak well. I, I can't be used by you, Lord. I can't do what you're asking me to do. I can't, I can't go and, and do the things that you have set before me to do because I don't, I don't speak well. I'm not, I'm not able enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not, uh, I'm not well enough to be able to do that. And so he reveals a, a painful insecurity. Th- then think about Moses's, Moses's ministry and see if you can't identify with this. Every time Moses came up short, every time the plan didn't go exactly as expected, every time that things got a little bit rocky, what was, who was there to remind him of it? All of Israel, right? All of Israel. They're, they're constantly, they're telling Moses, Moses, why did you take us out of Egypt? Moses, did you just bring us out here to die? Moses, why are, are you not, not leading us better? Why are you not being wiser? Why are you not being better? Why do you keep messing up? And he's trying to clean up everybody's messes. And the whole time he's trying to clean up everybody's messes, they're blaming him for the mess to begin with. And then we get to the incident that led, finally. I guess maybe the, we, we can see it as the final straw that broke the camel's back. The, you, you can read about this in Numbers 20. I've got it here from, from Psalm 106. Psalm 106 actually gives an account or, or a deeper explanation of what happened in Numbers 20. The people are thirsty. And they begin to revolt against Moses and Aaron. And they begin to, to turn on him. And they begin to, to question the goodness of God. And so God tells Moses, because they're thirsty. And so God tells Moses, speak to the rock and the rock will send out water. Well, apparently, apparently Moses wasn't known to be the most patient man. We already know he was an irritable fellow. We already know he had quite a temper. And so rather than speaking to the rock that water would pour out, he takes his staff and he strikes the rock twice. And the water comes out. So listen to what the account is in Psalm 106, uh, verses 32 and 33. It says, they angered him at the waters of Meribah. That's what it came to be known. Uh, Meribah actually means quarrelsome. <laughs> How about that for a memory? This is the waters of the quarrelsome. And it, will, it went ill with Moses on their account. For it made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. And so what God says in Numbers chapter 20, and this is we really get an insight into what he was talking about here in Psalm 106, is God says, Moses, you did not let my, represent my holiness among the people. You did not make my holiness clear to the people. You did not make my holiness evident to the people. And because you did not make my holiness clear to the people, you will not enter into the promised land. 
Another way for him to say that is because, because you are an angry man. Because you are a bitter man. Because you are a rash and irritable man. You're not going to lead my people forward into the promised land. See, Moses wasn't just a one-time sinner. He wasn't just a sinner in his younger days. Moses had a character that was flawed. Moses had a nature that was flawed. Moses had a heart that was flawed. And it was because of all of this that he was not able to go and to enjoy what God had set before him to enjoy. And I wonder how many of you can identify with Moses here. How many of you, you would feel like in your life you have an accumulation of regrets and this accumulation of regrets makes you feel as though you've ruined your life? Maybe you think about the divorce that you have. And it's like everywhere you go you have this big D word on your, on your chest and whatever conversations you have with your kids or with your, maybe your new spouse or, or maybe a potential spouse. It's like you have this, this scarlet D on your chest and it's like you, you carry this regret everywhere. So much so that it's like it's becoming the defining reality of your life. It's, it's ruining you. Maybe you look at your kids and you think I didn't raise them the way I should have. I failed, and I was, I, was, I was too irritable, I was too impatient, I, was, I didn't show them the Lord often enough, I, was, I wasn't faithful in my home, I was too hypocritical. And now you live, and you don't have the relationship with your kids that you desire to have, or maybe your kids don't have a relationship with Jesus that you desire for them to have, and you carry this around, and you carry this weight, and it's like this, this cloud that, that hovers over you, and you say, I just feel ruined. I, just, I feel like I've ruined my life. I feel like I've made myself totally useless in the kingdom of God. Maybe it's going in and out in the ebbs of, and flows of a pornography addiction or alcoholism. Maybe you're struggling with, with just your own irritability and your own anger in a way that is very relatable to Moses. And it's like every time you blow up, you, you condemn yourself. You have the condemning voice of your conscience. And then you have the condemning voice of everybody else in your life that reminds you of what a joke you really are and what a hypocrite you really are. Well, if that's where you are, I've got good news for you. I've got good news for you. Look at, look at verse 5 with me. Let's read verses 4 and 5 together. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. The land that you were supposed to go see, Moses. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it. You can't go in. I'm just going to let you see it with your eyes. But you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. Now, I point out this phrase, the servant of the Lord here, because it's rarely used in the Old Testament. We read servant, we just think somebody who, you know, was, had some kind of task that they were supposed to fulfill, and they at least somewhat made an effort to fulfill that task. But in the, in the Old Testament, it's rarely used. It's only used of a select few people. Let, let's name some of the people that it's used. Joshua, Job, Elijah. David, Isaiah, hey, and how about this, the suffering servant, the Messiah. You remember when he talks about the servant that's going to be bruised for his transgressions and crushed for his iniquities? It's the same word. 
Here's the picture. Here's the picture. Moses was a flawed man. Moses was a man that accumulated great, great regrets in his life. Moses was a man that, that suffered and strode and, and struggled all the time. He, he was a man that was always right on the edge of just blowing it big time. And yet, and yet, and yet, God found him useful. And yet God put his hand upon Moses so that the world would know it wasn't about a man. Moses wasn't the main character of this story. This was about the Lord. This was about his power. This was about his grace. This was about his ability. This was about his perfection, not Moses's. See, that's the game changer. You know what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that we are like clay pots. That we have all of these cracks, we're fragile, we're kind of a dime a dozen. There's not much value in the vessel. But he says that stored inside of these clay pots is the treasure of the gospel. Stored within these cracked, broken pots is the glory of God and the power of God and the majesty of God and the goodness of God and the grace of God and the presence of God. That that's who we are. Y'all, my guess is that there are some of you that feel like you've ruined your life. You feel like you've ruined your life. But what we learn in Moses and what we see time and again throughout the scripture and what some of you could stand here and testify to to this day is that God takes pleasure in redeeming the ruins. God takes pleasure in redeeming the ruins. That the only kind of people that God uses is screwed up people. The only kind of people that God uses are people that have problems and people that have struggles and people that have sins. The only kind of people that God uses are people that battle hypocrisy and people that battle, battle depression and anxiety and worry and people that battle sin and addiction and, and failures and coming up short. The only kinds of people that God uses are the imperfect ones. After all, didn't that what Jesus said? I didn't come... For the well, I came for the sick. For the well don't need a physician, the sick do. Right? These are the people that the Lord is coming to use. Are people like Moses. People like David. People like me. People like you. Here's what this means. If you will come to the realization in your life that success is not about what everybody here thinks about you. It's not what everybody, how everybody else here measures your parenting or measures your life or measures your career or measures your, your status. It's, it's not about any of those things. It's not even about how you measure those things. It's not about what you wanted and whether or not you've reached and fulfilled your dreams or you've, you've attained your ambitions or, or all of that. But if you can come to the realization that real success, real meaning, real significance in this world has to do with whether or not I am useful in the the hand of God and I am being used for the accomplishment of the will of God. If we can come to that realization, then what we can say is that none of us, so long as there is breath in our lungs, are worthless and ruined actually because God, God takes pleasure in taking, taking dying people and turning them into life. God takes pleasure in finding collapsing worlds and renewing them and making them into new worlds. God is a redeeming God. He takes what is broken 
and he makes it into something that is useful. And that's you. That's you. You are useful in the hand of God. So repent of your sins. Put to death whatever self-pity you have in your life. That self-pity is not worth anything. Put to death the self-pity and, and repent of your sin and place yourself firmly in the hand of the living God and say, God, I'm not the parent I wish I was, but would you use me now? God, I haven't been the husband or the wife that I wish I was, God, but I repent of that, would you use me now? God, I haven't been the friend that I've been called to be, but would you use me now? I haven't been committed to the church the way that I desire to be, but would you use me now? God, I haven't taken my life and lived it for your glory, but God, today, right now, I want to. God, I've been sitting here licking my wounds, thinking about how tragic my life is, but God, today, today I realize that whatever health I have left, whatever energy I have left, whatever hope I have left, it is placed in your hands that, Lord, I might be a vessel, cracked pot as I am, in your hands to possess your glory and your power and your presence to the advancement of your name. Let's look at the second promise. The second promise is what should be, will be. What should be, will be. Let's go back to verse 4 again. I really think verse 4, uh, verse four is the hinge point of all of Deuteronomy 34. It says this, it says, And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it. We're going to come back to that. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. All right, so it goes back, remember what we said, the main purpose of verse 4 is to say, you ought to be going into the promised land. You ought to be enjoying the promised land. You ought to be living in the promised land, but you're not going to make it. You're only going to be able to see it. Now, why did God do that? Because I think at first reading, it kind of almost seems mean-spirited by the Lord, doesn't it? Like, are you just teasing him? Are you just showing him what a loser he is? Are you, are you trying to make him feel bad about himself and trying to make him feel bad about his life? You march this elderly man to the top of a mountain just to show him and tantalize him with what he can't have? That's actually not at all what I think is happening here. It's not at all what I think is happening here. What's actually happening here is that God is showing him a present glimpse of a past promise for future hope. He's showing him a present glimpse of a past promise for future hope. Notice how he goes back and he says, this is the promise that I made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. This is a promise that's before you, Moses. This pre-exists you. This predates you. This, this is a covenant I make with Abraham. So you, it was never about you to begin with. It was never about your ability to begin with. It was never about your goodness to begin with. This was my promise. I'm the one that's going to sustain it. I'm the one that's going to carry the weight. This is something that I've been carrying forward for generation to generation to generation. And you were just an instrument in my hand. You were just a vessel in my hand. So he goes up there, and by his grace, he lets him see what he was, he was never going to be able to see otherwise. And it says that it shows him all the parameters of the promised land. The seeing part, the seeing part means more than just looking at it. The see it means to possess it. 
think about, think about this. Okay, so, so we see it. He says, I have let you see it with your eyes in verse 4. Verse 1, look, listen to how he says it. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is the opposite of Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, as far as Dan. And now even notice verse 7. I think verse 7 is so cool. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. He was able to see. God sustained his vision for this very moment. Now, what does this mean? What does this mean? You remember what God does in Genesis 12 through 15, what he does with with Abraham when he makes this promise to him? What does he do? He takes Abraham through the promised land and he what? He says, see it. I'm showing it to you. See all that your eyes can see. And everything that your eyes can see, you're going to possess it. Your, your, your descendants, your ancestors, they are going, this, they're going to own this. They're going to, they're going to live here. They're going to enjoy this because I'm making this promise to you. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 4? Jesus is being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. What does Satan do with Jesus when he tempts him to to trade kingdoms, to trade the kingdom of forever for the kingdom of now, the kingdom of God for the kingdom of earth? Do you remember what he says to do, what he does? He says he takes him high atop the mountain and he shows him. He shows him. See, this was a legal term. This this was a legal uh, process in antiquity. What they would do is as as you were making a transaction for land, before you took final possession of it, the owner of the land from whom you were purchasing it for would take you and they would show it to you. And you would see it. This isn't just looking over it real quick. This is you seeing what is now yours. This is you taking legal possession of the boundaries of that land. And so God takes him to the top of Pisgah and he lets him see the the full parameters of all the land that, that, that the children of Israel are about to inherit. That he might recognize and realize that the day has come that God has fulfilled his promise. So Moses won't get to enjoy and experience the promised land. But legally, as the representative of Israel, he is able to take possession of it. He's able to take possession of it. Now, he was supposed to go in and to experience it, right? He was supposed to go in and to enjoy it. Here's here's the the joy of it. Here's Here's the hope of this. God is saying, today you're going to possess it, but you're not going to experience it. But one day... One day, you're going to enjoy what today you possess. One day, you're going to walk through the the hills and the valleys, and you're going to eat the clusters of grapes, and you're going to enjoy the bounty of the land. One day, one day, you're going to enjoy it because I am giving you possession over it. I am giving you the assurance of it that even though it wasn't as it was going to be, as it was supposed to be in the moment, One day, one day, what was supposed to be was going to be. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the hope of the gospel. You look at your life right now, and what you see in your life is anything but what it's supposed to be. All of us are barreling in toward death. We've we've talked about that since the beginning this morning, but do you know we talk all the time about how death is the most natural thing in the world, but it's not, y'all. It's not. Death is the most unnatural thing in the world. God didn't design us to die. God designed us to live forever with him. Sin brought death into the world. Sin brought, brought harm into the world. Sin brought separation between us and God. 
We aren't supposed to be diminishing as we get older. We're supposed to be sustaining in a relationship with God. But instead, we're diminishing and our relationship with God is fractured. This world is not as it's supposed to be. It's unnatural, all of it. But the promise is, the hope is, is that one day, one day all that is supposed to be will be death will go away. Pain will go away. Suffering will go away. Abuse will go away. Cancer will go away. Addiction will go away. Uh, uh, Fractured relationships with one another. Fractured relationships with God. That will go away. All of the distance will go away. All of the sorrow will go away. All of the insomnia will go away. All of the worry and all of the anxiety and all of the hopelessness. All of it will go away. And why can we be certain that it will go away? Because we already have a possession because we already have a possession. When Jesus lived perfect, a perfect life, when he took our place upon the cross, and then, then, perhaps most importantly, when he was raised from the grave, do you know what the promise was? That now all who are in Christ, all who repent of their sin and place their hope in Jesus, now they possess some things. They possess some things. That now we possess a resurrection that's already ours. We just haven't experienced it yet. Already, we possess unity with God. We just haven't fully experienced it yet. Already, we have been made imperishable. We have been, we have been given the possession of a glorified body that will never diminish. It's already ours. Paul talks in the present tense about his crown in 1 Timothy that's already in eternity. We already possess our rewards. We already possess our mansions. We already possess all of the promises. They are ours. We already possess peace that surpasses all understanding even if we wrestle with it in the here and now. We already possess mercy and grace that is fresh and new every single morning, even though we, we struggle to live and to, to gleam in that reality in the here and now. We possess our justification with God. We possess our unification with Christ. We possess the indwelling of the Spirit. We possess the bridegroom that's going to come and, and take us to the wedding supper of the Lamb. We already possess that reception. One day, one day, we're going to fully enjoy what we possess right now. One day, we're going to fully fully enjoy what we already possess. There's a show, I don't know how many of you guys have seen it, but there's a show called Undercover Billionaire. Um, Anybody out there seen that, Undercover Billionaire? All right, you know, I kind of dig that kind of stuff. And so the, 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 here, here's the whole thrust of, a sto- of the story. This billionaire who has made, you know, amounts of money that you and I, we can't even comprehend. He goes and he essentially puts all of his wealth aside and he gets it where he's not able to touch it. And this TV crew is going to drop him in the middle of this town. He's got like 40 or 50 bucks to his name. And they're going to drop him in the middle of, of this town in Pennsylvania, I think, or no, Ohio. And, they're gonna, and he's got to go and he's got to try to build a million dollar business in like 90 days or, or something like that, okay? But, but it's interesting because he goes there and it shows him and he's wearing ratty old clothes, and you, and you can imagine, I mean, billionaires don't dress in ratty old clothes. But he's wearing these, these ratty old clothes, and, uh, and, and he's driving these beater cars that he's able to acquire over time through trading. And he's, he's staying in this roach motel, y'all, like 
roach motel. And he's going and he's doing all these little odd jobs here and there. And he wants to build this, this uh, barbecue restaurant. And so he's, he's trying to figure out all the different ways that he can do this. But you know, the whole time I was watching that, I had it in the back of my mind. Yeah, but buddy, you don't know what it's like. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this guy is acting like he's destitute, but he's not really destitute. This guy is living like he's broke, but he's not really broke. And so he doesn't know what it's like to actually be destitute. He doesn't know what it's like to actually feel broke. Because why? Because why? He already knows that his fortune is secure. He knows he's going back to the billions. He knows that, that once this time period is over, or once he hits the eject button on his phone, or, or whatever, that this can be over in five seconds, and he can go back to living in his mansion, cashing in his checks, wearing his, his royal clothes, and doing all his thing. He's destitute, but he's not really destitute, right? I think that's a good picture. I think that's a good picture of what, how we so often live. Y'all, we live in this world, and, and, and there's gender confusion, and there's, there's homosexuality running rampant, and there, there, are, there is child abuse that is unfathomable on the scales by people we're supposed to trust, teachers and pastors and police officers. And there's riots in the streets and riots at the Capitol. And, and we, we look at our own life, and we, we almost can't even grapple with all the tragedies that are happening around us and all the confusion that's happening around us because we're struggling to hold together just our, our basic lives. And our families always seem like they're on the verge of, of falling apart. And our marriages seem like they're always on the verge of falling apart. And we, as people, always feel like we're on the verge of falling apart. And y'all, it looks like we're destitute. But can I tell you, we are not destitute. We have been given an incomparable treasure in the kingdom of God that is ours forever. We already have our mansion, y'all. We already have our treasures, y'all. We already have our crowns, y'all. We cannot be defeated. And so, 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 so this morning, here's my, my plea with you. Do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. I know that right now things look as though they don't they're, look like they're not supposed to look. I know that your life hasn't went the way that it's supposed to have gone. And I know that some of it's your fault and that you've sinned. But one day, because of Christ, all that was supposed to be will be. All that was supposed to be will be made new. And you will experience the peace and the satisfaction that comes with all of that. That brings us to the final promise. Shadows are giving way to substance. Shadows are giving way to to substance. We'll cover this quickly. It says there, verse 10, and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. There's a prophet here. In Moses. And the point of, of the passage is, is that this prophet is a shadow of a prophet that is to come. He says it even more explicitly in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them and all, all that I command them. 
that there is a prophet that is going to be like Moses, but is going to be greater than Moses, uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3 says. In fact, you read Peter in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 3. If you read Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7 of the Sanhedrin, they allude to this and they say, no, in Christ, in Christ, the, the shadow has become substance. The prophet has come. Moses, Moses mediated an old covenant that brought to us the law. But, but Christ has come. The greater Moses has come. And he has mediated for us a new covenant. Not by bringing us the law. But by fulfilling the law. And satisfying the law on our behalf. That Moses led the great exodus. That Israel could be delivered from their slavery to Egypt. But Christ has come to deliver us from a greater slavery. From the slavery to death. From the slavery to, to sin. That we might be able to overcome. And he has led, so he has led a, an exodus that is unfathomable in comparison to the glory of that of Moses. Moses, he was a prophet that met face to face with God. And spoke on his behalf to the people. But Jesus... Jesus was the very face of God. So much so that he could say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He is the Word incarnate who has come to bring us hope. To show us that all of the things promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are true. To show us that all the things that we saw in Moses were imperfect shadows. Awaiting the fulfillment of their substance. So that we could be certain that though we live still in shadows today. That Christ is going to come yet again. And Christ coming yet again. All of the shadowy things that we see in our lives. And all of the mysteries that we have around us and all of the hardships that we face are going to give way. They're going to give way to the substance of Christ. So here's the thing. See, what Christ did for Moses is Christ took, the sh took faith and he turned it into sight. He had promised us a prophet that was to come. And in Christ, in Christ, you saw the prophet. Your eyes beheld him. But Christ promised he was coming back. And Christ promised that all of the brokenness that we see would be finally overcome. And all of the death that we know would be finally defeated. And all the sin that we struggle with would finally be wiped away. And so right now we walk in faith in the midst of the shadows. But one day, whether it's when you step out of this life into the next or it's when Christ returns, those shadows will give way to substance. And what will matter, what will matter is what did you do with your faith in the meantime? Who did you put your confidence in in the meantime? Who did you live for in the meantime? Because see, what you understand about death determines how you live. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. -on -one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon. 